going to be looking at verses 32 to 43 at the end of this chapter. A great, great chapter in which we've seen the, uh, uh, up to this point, uh, we've seen Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, dealing with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be changing gears a little bit this morning, and uh, we'll see that immediately as we begin to read. Would you stand with me? We do stand, of course, in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version of the Word of God as you follow along uh, in your own Bible. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the, the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Father, we pray that you speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this passage together. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that he would be our teacher as you gave him to be that for us, Lord, to teach us, to lead us into your truth, to give us understanding, Lord, of what you are saying, to, to magnify and glorify the name of Jesus. And God, we pray that that would take place in our hearts this day as we look into your word. Have your way with us, we pray. And also, Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us the, not only the understanding of what these things mean, but also the wisdom and discernment to know how these things apply to us today, so many years later, so many miles away. So, Father, we just give this time to you. We give our hearts to you. Be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. As we look at this uh, passage together, um, picking up after Saul of Tarsus had been converted and and, and we, we see in the last several verses before this passage starts in verse 32, I'd like to read verses 29 to 31 with you just as basically an introduction to where we're going to be going in, beginning in verse 32. Verse 29, And he spoke boldly, speaking, of course, of Saul of Tarsus. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So we come to the end of this um, account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
And as we saw in that last passage there of that account, that in the last two cities where he, where he was, there in uh, not, not only Jerusalem, where this took place in verse 29, uh, but also in Damascus. Remember, he had taken that three-year sabbatical uh, down in Arabia to, to study the word of God, to hear from him and so forth. What he would have went back to Damascus, preaching boldly. They wanted to kill him. They got him out of town. He went to Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him, and his friends got him out of town, basically. And that's going to be the story of Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul the Apostle, basically for the rest of his life. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ and not shying away from serving the Lord Jesus Christ, even though his life was threatened time and time and time again. And he endured a great deal of persecution in the name of Christ. And we'll be talking about that, of course, more as we go through the book of Acts. Now here in verse 32, we, we see the scene switched back over to Peter. Now, last time we saw Peter was in the 8th chapter. It seems like it was quite a while ago. We, we've been several weeks in the ninth chapter, but back in the 8th chap chapter, you remember that he and the Apostle John went to Samaria uh, because they had heard that the Word of God reached Samaria, that people had received it. They went to follow up with them, and it was there that they prayed that they would receive the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit is what that means, really. And that, that's the, the, the work that they did in, in their obedience to the Lord. They wanted to follow up with them, and of course, they, they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Here in this, in this, at the end of this chapter, in this passage that before us, we see uh, two separate miracles that take place through the hands of the Apostle Peter. Uh, one of them is, of course, a healing that takes place. The other is raising Dorcas from the dead. Now, as we see this, I think it's interesting to see the way that this begins, the way this passage begins. Now, it came to pass, there in verse 32, as Peter went through all parts of the country. Peter was doing a tour of various towns and villages where he had heard that the word of God had spread where people had bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the Messiah, and were saved. And, and, and we see him touring the land, following up to visit these churches. Now, based on what he had experienced in Samaria, it, it's certain that one of his concerns was that they understood the work of the Holy Spirit and his purpose in their lives. But we, we see here, he, in this tour that he's doing, you know, he is following up and just making sure that people are understanding. This causes us to think of what Jesus told him in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. This is connected with, with Jesus telling Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And here in this, these two verses, Luke 22, 31 and 32, we see these words. The Lord said to Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now there's no doubt that this experience of Peter being sifted by Satan. And it's all connected with Peter's denial of Jesus Christ, right? It's connected with that. There's no doubt that that experience of Peter, his three-time denial of his Savior, hit him hard, affected him greatly. And, and I think when Jesus told him here that that, you know, Satan had asked for him to sift him as wheat. Um, but then Jesus said, but I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Now, his denial of, of, of Jesus three times was not a failure of his faith. 
it wasn't the end of his faith, uh, but it was simply a, a blip on the screen in which his faith was weak, right? That's what we see here with Peter. P uh, Jesus assures Peter, even as he prayed that your faith should not fail or that your faith should not come to an end. That's what the word fail means. Uh, he said, and when you have returned to me. He didn't say if. When you have returned to me, when this weakness in your own faith comes to an end, you've returned to a life of serving me. Strengthen your brethren. I think Peter had to think an awful lot about that admonition, that command, really, of Jesus to strengthen your brethren. And that's exactly what Peter is doing when he takes this tour of these various towns and villages where the word of God had gone. People were believing the word of God and, and acknowledging Christ as the Messiah. He went to these places to strengthen them because that's what he'd been called to do by Jesus Christ. It just seems to me that Peter took this command very, very seriously. It also shows his heart toward new believers. He wants to get them on the right track. He wants to follow up with them to, see, to, to make sure that they're following the Lord Jesus in an appropriate way. And really, it's an extension or a part of, perhaps I should say, of Peter's heart to all believers. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, these words. Peter writes, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, the things that he had written in the first 11 verses, some great encouragement to the church. And in fact, he, he addresses the letter to all who have like faith as we, so to all believers. That, that's who the letter is addressed to. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent, that's how he described his body, in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So in order to be sure that he would give them a reminder of these things after his decease, he put it in writing. That's basically what he's talking about here. I'm writing you this letter for this purpose. I am not going to be, I'm not negligent of giving you these truths and reminding you. Guys, let me ask you guys, do, do, you, do you need reminders about your walk with the Lord? Do, do you need reminders about who Jesus is? Reminders of what he has done for you? Reminders of his power? Reminders of what he can do in a person's life? What he's already done in your own? Reminders of who we are in Christ. Reminders of also what we were before Christ entered into our lives. And the incredible work that he's done, the changes that he has made. We, we need reminders. You know, I have, in my experience as a, as a pastor, a, a teacher of God's word, I, I, have, I have heard of people... I can't say that I remember that anybody ever actually telling me face-to-face uh, -face of this, but heard of people who, you know, when, you know, pastor chooses to go through a book that he's gone through before, you know, a, a person saying, you know, we, we've already gone through that book. Can't you go through something else, something new? A as if they don't need the reminder, right? I, I, I think it's critical for us to be reminded, it's critical to read the Word, to read the Word, to read the Word over and over and over again because it is basic truth that, you know, I, I, well, let, let me ask you something. How many of you, let, let's say in the last, I'll, I'll, I'll broaden the scope of it, sometime this year, the last eight months, you have read something in God's Word that you've read multiple times before and the Lord has shown you something there that you hadn't seen before. Does that happen to you guys? It happens to me as well. You know, it, it's just simply true that 
because the, the word of God is, is living, the sword of the Spirit, it's, 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 it's a living sword. It, 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 it lives, it doesn't change, but it continues to do its work. You know, some people translate the idea of living as if it changes or evolves. No, that's not the case. It is always the same, but it always is at work in our hearts. So, you know, dividing be, be, between the soul and the spirit, right? As that passage in Hebrews 4, verse 12 tells us. But yeah, th that's what the Word of God does. And so we, we need that for continued growth as well as for a reminder of what God has done. Well, Peter found himself as he is taking this tour in the city of Lydda, the, the town of Lydda. In the Old Testament, we see it as Lod, L-O-D. It's about uh, 11 miles from Joppa, where he's going to be going following this. So Joppa is a seaport town. Uh, Lydda is uh, on the western slopes of the hills of Judea, basically, about 11 miles or so away from Joppa. And as we get to Joppa, you know, one, one uh, uh, understand, oh, an understanding of Joppa is that we know that that's the city, uh, the seaport from which Jonah left when he grabbed that ship to run away from God to the Mediterranean Sea, and that's the very place that that this great fish spit him ba out back onto the sand of the, of the beach there in Joppa. And uh, any of you who've been able to go to, to uh, Israel with us have been in Joppa. We'll make that stop in Joppa. We'll, we'll go to that little house that has got this sign on it that says the, the house of Simon the Tanner. You know, whether it actually is or not, I don't know. Could be, but it's probably a house like that. But it's kind of, it's, you know, when you go to Israel, it's trippy. You find yourself in these places where these things happen that we've read about. And it's like, this is where that happened. You know, it, it's just crazy. It, it is crazy. Go to Israel if you can. I, I, I implore you to do that. But that's where we are here. Now, uh, again, and this is all a part of just inward uh, from the coast there in the Mediterranean to the Judean hills to the east is what is known as the Plain of Sharon. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's where all this is located. Another thing here that we see in this passage is he came, in verse 32, he came down to see the saints. He wasn't visiting an American football team there. It's football season now, you know, so these things are in your mind. Now, um, all the believers who dwelt there in Lydda. We know that all believers are known to be saints, right? Now, maybe you didn't hear me. Let me say that again. We know that all believers are known to be saints, right? Yeah, I mean, the Bible is clear about that. The New Testament is very clear in relation to that truth. Um, the word that is translated as saints can be either a, an adjective or a noun. It speaks about being holy. The word hagios in, in, in the Greek, it means to be set apart or holy. And as a noun, it means literally holy ones. So what Luke is writing is that Peter went to Lydda to all of the holy ones who were there in that town, and he's just speaking of the reality of those who've come to Jesus Christ. We all, as we turn to, to Jesus Christ in faith, are set apart and made to be holy by him. That's not necessarily a description of our behavior, but we all certainly need to be working toward it being a description of our behavior, right? He calls us holy ones, and it is ours to live a life dependent upon the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit to be known as holy ones, not just simply because we're saved from our sins, but because we're living a life that's worthy to be called that. Now, none of us will do it perfectly. None of us ever will. But we ought to be 
doing that more today than we were yesterday, growing in our holiness. Pastor Chuck Smith wrote this. He wrote, as far as the New Testament is concerned, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are saints. We should think about that more. When you wake up in the morning and you see your reflection in the mirror, remind yourself that you're looking at a saint. Did you guys do that this morning? What do you think about that advice, though? Indeed, that's what we're doing. We're looking at a saint, one who has been set apart by God. And as we understand that, Pastor Chuck continues and writes, then go and act like it. Then go and act like a saint. Verse 33, as we move forward, we see here that Peter found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Now, I just want to take a moment to contrast what we see here in verse 33 with what we see in verse 36. Look at this. In verse 36, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Here, he, founds a he finds a certain man, and in Joppa, he finds a certain disciple. Luke didn't say a certain woman, and in verse 33, he didn't say a certain disciple. This would lead us to believe that Aeneas probably was not yet born again. Somebody who was known to those who were a part of the church, but someone who had a great need. And a part of the story in, these, in this passage here, as, as Peter uh, is used by God to, to heal Aeneas and, and, and then to raise Dorcas from the dead in the following uh, uh, paragraph, uh, a, a part of this is, is Peter, as a servant of God, having concern for people and making himself available to them. If he had not made himself available, he could not have been used by God. And we're reminded that all, God's, all God wants from us, it's not so much that he's looking for people with ability. He's the one that gives us that ability. He's looking for people with what? Availability. Allowing God to place us in the place where he can use us giving us his power, his ability, his strength to work in the lives of other people, to serve them in some particular way. And so as, as, as we see Peter there, he is finding this man. He undoubtedly was led to this man. He goes to this person's house. He finds him bedridden because he's paralyzed, and he had been in that, that state for eight years. And then verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. Not unlike Peter that we saw earlier in the book of Acts, the, the man who was born lame at the gate called Beautiful, you recall. He looked at the man. John was with him, and Peter looked at him. He said, uh, um, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. He, and he grabbed him by the arm and picked him up and said, stand up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we see how this man was, 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 was leaping and walking and leaping and praising God on his way to the temple as he went to the temple with Peter and John at the hour of prayer. That's why Peter and John were walking through the gate called Beautiful on the way to prayer. We, we see several things taking place here. We, we see several gifts of the Spirit in action, which we'll get to in just a moment. But as we see Peter starting here, he says, Jesus the Christ heals you. I mentioned earlier about how it seems that the uh, that incident of, of Peter denying Jesus three times had to affect him incredibly. 
And I think this is one of the ways that it impacted him. After having been, after having denied Jesus those three times, after being restored by Jesus uh, in John chapter 20, as we see on that beach, after Peter had said, I'm going fishing, and then, you know, seven or eight of the guys went with him and so forth. Um, I think Peter determined in his mind, I'm never even going close to that again. Is what every opportunity he took the privilege and, and responsibility to always give praise to Jesus, always give glory to Jesus, always recognize him for who he is, always. We see Peter consistently doing that. I, I think it's connected to that denial and his restoration and him coming to a place of determining, I'm never doing that again. Through the book of Acts, we see him consistently giving glory to God. Back in John chapter 15, he heard Jesus say this in verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And it's very true, we can do nothing of any spiritual work. The context speaks about walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do anything without him, amen? I mean, there are things we can do with, with, without the Lord Jesus, and you can go to school and learn that 2 plus 2 is 4, unless the new math has changed that somehow, I'm not sure. Has it? I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Um, well, as long as you go through the right process, you come, come up with 5, you're okay. You know, I mean, stuff like that they do. It's crazy. Anyway, what was the point? Well, spiritual things. Living for the Lord, blessing people. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, the power of God's Spirit, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is the writing of Paul, the apostle, of course. These were things that Peter was learning as well. Not only could we do nothing apart from Christ, in him, there's a reality that because of his power in us, there's nothing that he'll ask us to do that we can't do. He who is able, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or even think. I love that passage, speaking about even in our wildest imaginations, Jesus can do beyond that, much beyond that. And then, of course, Peter himself writing in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, we see these words. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. You think that Peter is concerned about glorifying Jesus. He mentions it three different times in this passage. And so Peter, from the honor of being used by him to bless others, to the privilege to suffer for him, he was consistently, always giving glory to Jesus Christ. Something for us to learn. Do all things to the glory of of God. All things to the glory of God. Well, as Peter spoke to him, Jesus the Christ heals you, he then said, arise and make your bed. Now, this is language that is very familiar to us. Back in Mark chapter 2, 
verses 11 and 12. As in that passage, this man was, this, this uh, paralytic man was brought to a house where Jesus was ministering and, and the uh, uh, house was packed, couldn't get in the doorway, the, the crowd was spilling outside of the house and so forth. You remember the story. These four friends of this paralytic got up on top of the roof and tore away the, the rooftop, let him down to, to Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said, I forgive you. And then the naysayers, in other words, the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes, said, who's this who thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they're right. But... They didn't want to recognize Jesus as God manifest in their flesh. But when that happened, Peter, of course, was there in verses 11 and 12 of Mark 2. And remember, Mark is a gospel. It's written by Mark, of course, but given to Mark by Peter. Mark wrote it, but Peter basically gave, to, gave it to him having spent having experienced these things that, that Mark was writing about. But this is what Jesus said. He said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, earlier, Jesus said, what, what do, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or arise, take up your bed, and walk? And he said, to prove that I can forgive sins, then he said this to this man. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out, of the, went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, Peter did what Jesus did. He said, arise, take up your bed. Well, this man was in his home already, so he couldn't say, get up and take your bed to your house. He said, get up and make your bed. That was a phrase that he borrowed from his wife, I'm sure in speaking to him. But we see here that he's, he, he basically is mimicking Jesus. He's mimicking Jesus. Um, in all this, I mentioned that there are several spiritual gifts that are, that are used here. The gift of healings, gift of miracles, gift of faith, just as a reminder, the, the gifts of the Spirit is laid out by Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 12. There are more than this and in several other places, but I'm just going to kind of focus on this one here this morning. In verses 7 to 11 in 1 Corinthians 12, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. That's interesting. He gives gifts to you and to me so that others can profit so that others can be blessed, right? He goes on, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now the Holy Spirit chooses which gift or gifts he may give to you, distributing as he chooses, as he wills to do, and we are to use them for one, the glory of God, for two, the blessing of other people around us. That's what being gifted by God is, is all about, and this is certainly something that Peter did. As I mentioned, the gift of healings, the gift of miracles, the gift of faith. I think the gift of faith is somehow uh, connected with the gift of knowledge, understanding that God was going to heal him. And so, like he did the, the lame man by the gate, gate called Beautiful, he picked up that other man. This one, he says, get up in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, get up and make your bed like a good husband, like I do, because my wife tells me to. So all, verse 35, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned 
to the Lord. And here we see, I think, a basic principle. As people see us serving God, as people see us honoring God in our lives and being a blessing to other people through the work of God in us, through, through the work of Him through us, through the gifting that He gives, in, in all that, people see it. Here we see people, we see that people saw this incredible miracle of healing to this man who had been paralyzed for eight years lying in his house. They saw it, and what do we see? They turned to the Lord. When, see, when people see God in action, they tend to turn toward Him. And when people see God in action in your life, that's the effect that it's going to have on people around you. People will turn toward the Lord. We see this time and again through this passage. In fact, we see it at the end of the next incident of, 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 G, of, of excuse me, Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. So verse 36. At Joppa, we've already talked about Joppa. There was a certain disciple, obviously this woman was a follower of Christ, named Tabitha. That, that's in the, the, the Aramaic, Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, which is in the Greek. Now, let, let's not make the mistake of allowing Dorcas to be English. Not the best uh, term. I mean, do you ever feel like a dork? Have you been called a dork? I think we all are in one way or another in our peculiarities, but I just want to make that clear. Dorcas is the Greek of the um, Aramaic Tabitha, both of them meaning gazelle. Gazelle. Um, some of you may have that in a footnote in, in, in your Bible, even if you're looking at it right now. But the point being, gazelle, you know, a gazelle is a, a very graceful, beautiful animal. You know, the way a gazelle will leap, and I mean, with such grace, and, and you know, I mean, it's like, I think it's a very cool name to have, you know. Um, but this woman had to be a woman of, of incredible grace. But the, but the point being that in that grace, she was, the following sentence says, a woman being full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Full of good works. This defined her. She was a woman of good works. I don't know if you guys have ever thought of particular ways that you might want to be known by and the way that you want to be remembered. Uh, known in by other people? Uh, what, do we, what do other people say about you? What kind of person are you? you know, what are you full of? The idea of, of being filled, it's just the idea of this is something that is a, a, a primary facet or even maybe something that controls you. you know, to be filled with the Spirit means we're allowing the Spirit to control us. You know, a person who's filled with rage at that moment is being controlled by that rage. You know, you know what I mean? That, that, that's the idea of being full. Full of good works. This is something that defined her and, and the charitable deeds which she did. What an incredible way to be known. This reminds us that in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we see the Apostle Paul writing, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we might be saved. No, that's not what it says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. This is the very purpose in our lives for which God has created us and, do, and, and done His work in us that we might do those works that He already has prepared for us. 
God understands. He knows the encounters that we're going to be having this next week or this next couple of weeks. And he has already been doing a work in us through our experiences, through the lessons that we've learned, through, through understanding the Word of God and being taught through the Word of God, our reading of the Word of God, the gifts that he gives to us, the person that he's making us to be, making us into that person who will effectively do that good work for his glory and the blessing of, of the people. And then even participating in that good work is a part of the work that he's doing in us to prepare us for the next good work. It, it all works together. But there's no doubt that God is doing his work in you and in me to equip us with the ability to do those good works that he already has laid out for us from beforehand. He's already got our path charted out. He knows what our path is. And he enables us to fulfill God's plan in that path. So as a woman of good works, we see in the next couple of verses, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, as I shared before, uh, around 11 miles from uh, apart, and the disciples had heard, the disciples in Lydda had heard that Peter was, excuse me, in Joppa had heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And when Peter arose and went with them, when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And of course, in that upper room were the people who were mourning for her. And we see here, um, all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. The point here is that they were wearing the very clothing that she had made for them. They were widows. They were poor. You know, it's not like they went over to the shelf and got things off the shelf where it says, this tunic is $2.99 this week. You know, and it's not, no, it's like they were wearing these clothes that she had made for them because they were widows and were poor. It's a part of these good works and charitable deeds that she was so full of. That, that's the point here that we see. So that, that connection is an important one to make here in this passage. Um, might we be known, as I said earlier, for the good works that God has called us to perform, God has called us to do? Not that we can be honored and glorified so that the Lord can be honored and glorified. But these widows were, were, were grieving. They were weeping. They were showing Peter what, what she had done for them. Uh, and they, they were just heartbroken. Well, in verse 40, we see Peter puts them all out. And he knelt down and prayed. Now again, we see Peter mimicking his master his Lord Jesus. Um, back in Mark chapter 5, in the Gospel of Mark, we see the story of the way that Jesus rose, or, or, or raised, I should say, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Mark 5, verses 40 to 41, remember that Jesus got to the home. Uh, Jairus had sent a a, a, a servant to go get Jesus, didn't need to go, but he chose to go anyway, but he came to the home, and, and this, little, this little girl had died. And then Jesus said, well, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, remember? And then we see here in verse 40 of Mark 5, and they ridiculed him for saying that. But when he had put them all outside... He took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, his apostles, and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. P 
Peter was with him there, even as he was with, with Jesus when he healed this paralytic in chapter 2 of Mark, seeing what Jesus did. You know, one of the things that we see that Jesus did is when he was being ridiculed, he basically expelled from the room that spirit, that, that's, that, that spirit of, of uh, ridiculing, the spirit of doubt, the, the, the lack of faith. And he allowed the mom and dad and, and his, his apostles to remain with him. Peter sent everyone out. He knelt and prayed. Now, we didn't see Peter kneel and pray before his other uh, miracles, before the, the works of healing the lame man or, or the paralytic that we've talked about already. Uh, uh, we, we didn't see him doing it. We just see, see him with faith, acting and speaking with faith for the healing. But here we see him uh, praying. He kneels down and he prays. I, I, I think we can take a lesson from this, guys. When, when there is something before us, now, I think I wonder if part of, part of what was in Peter's mind is, you know, it's one thing to see a lame person or a paralytic get up and walk. It's another thing to see someone who's dead come to life. Maybe he's thinking, I really need to pray about this one. I really need to hear from God. The others I was sure from God, I heard from God, but... I'm not sure I'm hearing from him right now. You know, I mean, he could have been that. And even as I'm saying that, it doesn't say that here, so we have to be careful. Just wondering. One thing we know is Peter sought the Lord. He knelt down and prayed. And obviously, the direction that God gave to him was to do the following thing. He got everybody out like Jesus did. And then he says a, a couple of words like Jesus did, very, very similar. In Mark 2, he said, Talitha kumi, Aramaic for little girl arise. Here he says, Tabitha kumi, just speaking to this grace-filled woman by the name of Gazelle, arise. And of course, she came to life as we see. But I think a question that I have to ask myself and, and you should ask yourself too is am I taking to heart the admonition to when I've got a choice before me I've got something to do and perhaps I don't know what to do. Am I seeking the Lord? Do I pray before I act? Or do I act and then say, oh, that didn't go well, I better pray. You know what I mean? Sometimes that's how we do it. You know, we, we, we do the wrong thing, you know, out of our own choice. And, oh, man, why didn't I pray? I, Lord, I didn't even seek you. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, Joshua did that in leading the people of Israel into the promised land. You know, suffered that defeat from his small town, Ai, after the, the Lord brought an incredible victory in Jericho. He didn't seek the Lord. Well, this is going to be easy. Let's be careful. Let's be careful in the things that we do and the need for us to seek God for all things. Imitating Jesus. You know, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He invites people to copy him, to mimic him in the same way that he has chosen to mimic Jesus Christ himself. And, and guys, I, I think that this is something that all of us should do. I think Paul writing this to the Corinthians is something that, of course, the Holy Spirit saw fit to include this in this letter. So he's speaking to us too. He's speaking to you and to me to, to imitate him, even as he imitated Christ. And I think he's also speaking to us to do the same, 
to have the heart's desire to say to other people, just mimic me as I mimic Jesus Christ. You know, I think there are too many of us who shy away from that because we realize that our walk is far away from one that can be or should be copied by others. And I think there's a certain amount of humility that we ought to have in that, and yet might that not keep us from putting our hand to the plow and moving forward in our walk with Jesus so that we are mimicking him better and better and better so that people are learning by watching us how to follow after Jesus. After we've been walking with the Lord a while, that really ought to be the case, right? That really ought to be the case. And I certainly realize that from my own perspective as a, as, as a man, not just simply as a Christian man, but as a pastor. You know, as a Christian man who's known the Lord for over 40 years now. You know, I mean, I mean, close to 50 at this point. Actually, it'll be next summer. I'm in my 50th year now, yeah, because it's 49 years this past July that I, ser- that I got saved. I mean, I ought to be walking in such a way that people can look at me and say, well, that, that's, that's, that's how you follow Jesus. That's how you follow Jesus. And I pray that that's true. I've, I've, this passage, this, this saying, of this writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, always has been something that the Lord spoke to me on. You know, to, to desire that others might do the same in, as they watch my life. Now, again, as we saw in the previous healing, the previous miracle, we see now here in verse 42, after Peter takes her, takes her hand and presents her to the saints and the widows alive, verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. Again, God at work, people finding out about it, they know about it, they hear about it, and they turn to the Lord. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. One last verse here, verse 43. So it was, he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Now it's not big news that Peter would choose to stay in Joppa. It's a seaport city. It's a beautiful area, right? Right there on the shore, uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's not news that he would lodge with a man named Simon. That's his own name, right? Very common name in Israel. But the thing is, Simon was a tanner. This, this house was likely outside of, of the city, which, which fits for that home that we, that we go to in, in uh, Israel when we make a trip there to Joppa. Because... Uh, a tanner was known, according to the Jewish law, to be unclean. A tanner would have to handle the skins of dead animals, right? And could not be cleansed to be able to come into contact with other person, according to the, to the Jewish law, without going through some kind of a cleansing ritual. Um, weren't, re- weren't permitted to live within city limits for those reasons, uh, and, and if a father uh, uh, allowed his daughter to be, be, to be betrothed to a man, and then he found out afterward that he was a tanner, and he could call it off. I mean, with have the right to do so. That's how tanners were viewed among the Jews. Now, Peter, being a Jew, lived that way. Up until this time, he was seeing he was seeing changes being made. Things were becoming different. Jesus was doing his work in the lives of, of many people. And really, what we see Peter being groomed for here, here, as the Lord is working in his heart, we're going to see in the next chapter an incredible thing take place as, as Peter goes to the home of, of a Roman centurion, into a Gentile, goes into that home, which a Jew would never do, and the Lord uses him to share the gospel with this Gentile man. And Cornelius becomes the first Gentile that we see in the book of Acts who comes to Christ. 
But this idea of the tanner, this idea of not having contact with them, this idea of, of having certain views of people, certain prejudices in our own hearts. Romans 2.11 says, Paul writing, for there is no partiality with God. Peter was learning that. There should be no partiality with us either. James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 1, and then verses 8 and 9, these words, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And then he goes on in verse 8 later, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, in the early days of the Calvary Chapel movement, it was the hippies of that day that Pastor Chuck and Kay, his wife, wanted to minister to, especially his wife Kay. His, his wife Kay that really changed his heart toward his view of hippies. Um, that was the challenge to the church, you know, to the point that the Board of Elders decided, you know what, we can't let these hippies in. They come up with, with barefooted and their feet are dirty, the carpets get dirty, we have to wash the carpets every couple of weeks. And Pastor Chuck said, famously said, well, if it does damage to the carpets and we can't afford to clean them, let's take the carpets out. We're going to minister to these people. You know, we tend to look at people who are different from us in some way with a prejudiced heart. I, I think it's, it's really in the heart of every person. It's just a part of the sinful nature that all of us have to deal with. No, let me rephrase that. That all of us need to allow the Lord to deal with and, and, and change us in that way. And whatever it is, whether, whether it's hippies, whether it, it's, I mean, later on in the church, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, it was tattoos and piercings. I mean, that's very, very common, not only in our culture, but even within the church. And, and we, can, we can divide over so many different things, you know. Um, God help us not to do that. I want to close by reading Galatians 3. 26 to 29, writing of the Apostle Paul. He writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. And regardless of the differences that we see in one another, whether we can see that we come from a different part of the world, our skin's a different color, we come from, a, from the, the, the opposite sides of the track, you know, economically, or whatever it may be, a lot of social things that can divide us. And it seems like nowadays anything can divide us. God, God help us that it doesn't divide us as a church that we as followers of Christ are all one. And I love seeing, you know, our, our group's a bit smaller today in this holiday weekend, but I love seeing the, 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 different, the differences in you guys. You know, I mean, it, it, you guys are obviously from a lot of different places in terms of genetically and so forth, you know, and I, I love to see that. The church should be a place like that and understanding that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is pretty big on unity, isn't he? Amen. Amen. And we've got to remember, in the case of Peter here, as he is going to be making his way to Caesarea to visit Cornelius, we must remember that every single soul is important to God. That's why he gives his gospel to be preached to all throughout the world. And we don't have to go very far to find people who are different from us. But we're commanded to preach the gospel to all. And of course, in terms of the importance of every soul, let's remember, I think it's good for me to remember how, I, how God views me, my own importance to him your own importance to him. Let's remember that.
And Father, I pray that these are lessons that we'll learn and continue to learn, that we'll continue to, continue to even as we learn them, to, to practice them, Lord. The reality of oneness in the body of Christ, the unity that you have given to us. And the gospel is for all. Might we learn from these things? Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your grace toward us. And the fact that in that goodness and grace, you brought the gospel to us to hear that we might respond, that you might save us. We saw some good deeds, perhaps, of some person or somebody really demonstrated a, a faithful walk with you and it, it caught our eye. Lord, whatever it is that you've used, thank you. We thank you that we're yours. And God, might we be used by you in some small way to contribute toward another coming to you. Have your way in us, we pray. We love and thank you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's